If you could turn again in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17 this time. And in the church Bibles, that's page 386. And in the larger print Bibles, 596. 2 Kings chapter 17. And I'll read the whole of chapter 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. He reigned for nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He sent them to Hala, to Gozan, and the river Habor, and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, And followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey. And that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. And were as stiff-necked as their ancestors. Who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees. And the covenant he had made with their ancestors. And the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols. And themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, though the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. 
So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until He thrust them from His presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all his servants the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they're still there. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Shepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, make one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The people from Babylon made Succoth Benoth. Those from Kutha made Nergal. Those from Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibaz and Tartak. The Shepharvites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Shepharvaim. They worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down, and to him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you, and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. 
This is God's word. And it describes the end of the line for Israel, at least the end of the northern kingdom. And this is something that has been coming for a long, long time. And the surprising thing about this chapter is that the exile itself is described in just six verses at the beginning. They're really just bullet points giving us the main facts. It's almost as if the details of how the end came aren't really that significant. Much more important is why the end came. The writer of Kings spends much more time on that. And that makes sense, because this book was written to people who were very familiar with how it all happened. What they needed to think about was the cause of Israel's downfall. Israel's downfall couldn't be altered, but future generations could learn from the mistakes of their ancestors. And that's where this passage is valuable to us. It doesn't just describe the end of the line for Israel. It helps us understand why it happened. This chapter is about the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter for ancient Israel is the heart of the matter for us today as well. But we start with a few historical details. Verses 1 to 6 show us that time runs out for Israel. Last week, we saw a new superpower appear on the scene in the Middle East. Here's a map of the ancient Middle East. Here are the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and to the east, Assyria. And at this point, the Assyrians are aiming to conquer everything in sight, and they're doing pretty well at it. Chapter 16, which we looked at last week, showed us how Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, overran the Arameans, and he captured their capital city, Damascus. If you look on the map, you can see how Aram had been like a buffer between Israel and Assyria. But with Aram defeated, there's no buffer anymore. And in that situation the northern kingdom of Israel gets a new king, Hoshea, son of Elah. And his first concern has to be, what is he going to do about Assyria? Well, what he does is try to double-cross the Assyrians. By this stage, Tiglath-Pileser has been succeeded by Shalmaneser. And Hoshea starts off trying to pay off Shalmaneser. At least, that's what he claims he's trying to do. But actually, he's just trying to buy some time for himself. Verse 4 tells us, Hoshea has put his faith in so king of Egypt. It's hard to be sure which king of Egypt this is referring to. It seems to be an abbreviation, maybe a nickname. Around this time, Egypt had several rulers that came in quick succession, and even a couple of rival rulers at the same time. So there are a few candidates for who this might be. But whichever one of them was known as so, Hoshea was foolish to pin his hopes on this Egyptian king. Now, it's true that Egypt was having a bit of a resurgence during this period, but it was nothing like the powerhouse 
it had been in the past. And it was certainly no match for Assyria. But Hosea thinks Egypt can save him. And he's so confident about that, he stops the payments to Shalmaneser. And verse 5 gives us Shalmaneser's response. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, in the river Habor, and in the towns of the Medes. That was standard Assyrian policy. Disperse captured people across a wide area. That way they're less likely to band together and rise up against you. They're spread too thinly for that to happen. In the books of Kings, Samaria has been under siege twice before from powerful enemies. Both times God has delivered them in the past, but not this time. This time, time has run out for Israel. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel ceases to exist. Those are the historical details. But now the writer turns to a much more significant issue as far as he's concerned. How did it come to this? Well, to answer that question, if it was asked to us, we might point to the sheer power of the Assyrians. Or we might point to the foolish decisions of Hosea, trusting Egypt to save him. And on one level, those are correct answers. But the writer of Kings wants us to see the deeper reasons for Israel's fall. And the first reason is misplaced devotion. Have a look again at verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. If we're going to understand Israel's downfall, we have to understand who God is. And time after time, the Old Testament tells us, if you want to understand God, look back to the exodus from Egypt. There you see God for who he is. He is the God who loves to save. How do the Ten Commandments begin? Well, they don't begin with a command at all. They begin with a reminder. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The God we're talking about is the God who acts in love to rescue and deliver his people. And so the New Testament says, as we heard earlier, we love Because he first loved us. And that has always been true of God. It didn't start in the New Testament. It's always been true. We only have the chance to love God because he loved us first. It was true of Old Testament Israel. They only had the chance to love God because he had first brought them up from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He delivered them from that bitter oppression and slavery. 
Before God gave Israel any commands at all, he demonstrated his love for them. He showed his power to rescue and save them. As the Israelites looked back on their history, the Exodus stood there like a big monument with a banner draped across it. The banner said, I love you. Signed, the Lord. And as you and I look back at history, the Exodus with its banner is still there. But for us, there's an even bigger monument standing in history with a bigger banner draped across it. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. The New Testament describes the cross as a new exodus, an even greater demonstration of God's love for us. Before you and I ever began to love anything, God's love for us was already there. And it was the same for ancient Israel. And so for Israel and for us, the key question is always this. Will we love the God who loved us first? Or will we turn away and give our love to other things? We never have to wonder if God loves us. Neither did Israel. For them and for us, his love has already made the first move. So how did Israel respond to God's love? Look at the end of verse 7. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their times. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. When we read through these verses, the impression we get is the impression of passionate devotion. These people are not cold. They're not apathetic. They're enthusiastic in pouring out their love. They're pouring it out from watchtower to fortified hill. Watchtowers would have been in isolated places. They were set up so farmers could keep an eye on their flocks in the wilderness. And the fortified hills, those were the populated areas. So in the wilderness and in the towns, these people are showing their devotion. They're showing it in the places everyone can see on every high hill. And they're showing it in the secluded places as well, under every spreading tree. These people are devoted, but not to the Lord who loves them. They're devoted to other gods, things they have made themselves. Things they got from other nations. And what was true of Israel is true of all human beings. James Smith puts it like this. The question is not whether we love, but what we love. All of us, every single one of us, is going to love something. That's just the way we are. We are beings who love. We can't help it. 
question is not whether we love, but what we love. As far as the Bible's concerned, if we are devoted to anything other than the living God, then our devotion is badly and sadly misplaced. And I know that raises a question. Are you saying, I can't love my family? Are you saying, I can't love and enjoy my work or my hobbies? Well, the answer to that question is, it depends. There is an appropriate love for our family and our work and our hobbies. And there's an inappropriate love for those things. If we love those things as good gifts given by God for us to enjoy, then our love for those things is part of our love for God. Even as we enjoy those things, we're really looking beyond those things to the God who gave them to us in the first place. If you and I have that perspective that good things are gifts from a loving God, then He's the one we're loving. Even as we delight in our family and find fulfillment in our work and find refreshment in our hobbies. So long as we're keeping looking beyond the gifts to the one who gives them, then our enjoyment of God's gifts is part of our enjoyment of Him. We're praising Him for His goodness and kindness. But the problem comes when we begin to love those things as if they are God. As if our happiness and our contentment depends on them. As if they have ultimate value. Once that happens, then those things have become idols. They were meant to be tokens of God's goodness and love. But once we start worshipping them instead of God, then our love has become misplaced. That is essentially what Israel has done. The various gods that they worshipped were all connected to God's creation in some way. To do with fertility, or the weather, or crops. Israel had taken those things that God provides and turned those things into ends in themselves represented by little idols they bowed down to. You and I can do that too. When we take the skills given to us by God, or the possessions He's given us, or the people He's given us, and we treat them as if our happiness and contentment depends on them. And the end result of idolatry is not only heartbreak for us, because our idols can never deliver what we hope for. The end result of idolatry is not just heartbreak, but it's being cut off from God. It's because idolatry involves rejecting the true God. It's rebellion against a loving God. And it ends with separation from God. For Israel, that meant exile from the land God had given them generations before this. Later in the chapter, that will be described as being removed from God's presence. So the exile was always much, much more than just moving from one place on the map to another place on the map. It represented an alienation from God. 
And according to the New Testament, idolatry leads in the end to eternal alienation from God in hell. That's the ultimate exile. So let's ask ourselves, am I loving some gift from God as if it actually is God? Have I turned a good thing into a God thing? Let's ask ourselves that and then let's look back to the Exodus. Even more, let's look back to the cross and let's Resolve to devote ourselves to the God who has loved us first. No idol has ever done that. The writer of Kings goes on to give us a second reason for Israel's fall. Stubborn defiance. In verse 7, we were reminded of the Exodus. Now in these verses we're reminded of something that happened very soon after the Exodus. God brought Israel to Mount Sinai and he gave them his law. So verse 12 mentions what the Lord said. In verse 13, we hear about his commands and decrees. In verse 15, his decrees and statutes. In verse 16, his commands are mentioned. All of this is referring to the law God gave at Mount Sinai through Moses after the Exodus. It's important to realize when God gave the law, he was not saying, earn my love by living this way. Now remember, God's love came first. He showed it by bringing Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So when the law came eventually, the message was, I have demonstrated my love for you. Now if you love me, show your love by obeying me. Respond to my love by living according to my decrees and commands. And here we're reminded, God didn't say that to Israel just once. Nor did he say it just twice. Look at verse 12. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. In verse 13, stiff-necked, the picture there is the idea of a farmer trying to work with an obstinate animal. The animal won't bend its head for the harness or for the yoke. It's stiff-necked. And that's what Israel has been like for generations, God says. They were not in the dark about God's message to them. It's not like he only said it once and they missed it. He repeated the message year after year through prophet after prophet. If you love me, 
keep my commands. We're not talking here about a one-off instance of disobedience. This has been a lifestyle for Israel. It's been a settled disobedience. It has persisted in the face of all God's prophets and seers. We've seen that throughout 1 and 2 Kings. And so when the exile finally comes, as the readers of the book, our response is not, what a harsh thing for God to do. If we've been reading right through this, when we finally get to the exile, we think, what's about time? What took God so long? The fact is, God's patience with these people has been supernatural. In the face of their sin, his mercy has been extended to the point where we begin to wonder about his justice. God has been long-suffering to the point where we might question, is he ever going to bring the consequences he promised to bring for evil and sin? Is he going to suspend punishment forever? Israel's defiance has been a stubborn defiance. And eventually, stubborn defiance ends in destruction. Here in our passage, verses 18 to 23 remind us of the ultimate outcome of that stubborn defiance. Verse 23 says, The Lord removed them from his presence. As we saw earlier, that is the real tragedy of this exile. It's not just removal from their homes and cities. It's removal from the presence of God. There's a joke about a man who fell off the top floor of a skyscraper. And all the way down to the ground, he keeps saying to himself, so far, so good. So far, so good. The joke is that the man is deluding himself. The only reason he's not screaming in terror is because he's blind to the deadly situation he's in. That's what Israel has been like for hundreds of years by this point. God sends to them prophet after prophet warning them, telling them, turn from your idolatry, respond to God's love by obeying him. And Israel just keeps on going, So far, so good. So far, so good. Don't live like that. If you are stubbornly defying God, if you're resisting his command to admit your sin and trust in his son for forgiveness, then you have no reason to walk around like everything's okay. The reality is you are speeding towards destruction. It would be much more seeing to walk around screaming. And the ultimate sanity is to run to Jesus and be saved. And I would guess if we all had to describe ourselves... Not many of us would choose to call ourselves idolaters, probably. Not many of us would say, yes, we're stubbornly defying God. But when we come now to the last section of our passage, the challenge might feel 
a bit closer to home for a lot of us. Because as verses 24 to 41 tell us, no one can serve two masters. Back in 1 Kings, the prophet Elijah gathered the Israelites together on Mount Carmel and he said to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. In other words, Elijah was saying, make up your mind. Choose your side. You can't play both sides. And here in our passage, we the readers are confronted with the same choice. Remember, the writer of Kings is writing for men and women living after these events. He's writing to teach and challenge us as he shows these events to us. And he does that here as he describes what life was like in the land of Israel after the Israelites had gone. And we noticed earlier, Assyria had this policy of scattering people in exile. They did it with the Israelites, and they did it with the other peoples they conquered as well. That means the land of Israel doesn't stay empty. Look down to verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Shepharvaim and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. From the Assyrians' point of view, one benefit of this is to mix up the peoples. That makes it less likely they'll rebel. They don't have common cause anymore. And it also stops these conquered territories from turning into wastelands. The newcomers can keep the place cultivated so they can pay taxes to the Assyrians. But in the land of Israel, also known as Samaria, these imported people quickly run into a problem. Verse 25, when they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, make one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. On the face of it, this seems great. Here we have the Assyrian king, and he wants these people taught to worship the Lord. Sounds great, but it turns out what the king has in mind is not quite what the Bible means by worshiping the Lord. The Assyrians are polytheists. That means they're glad to worship the Lord along with all the other gods they come across. From their perspective, worship is about knowing how to keep all the gods happy. What's the magic formula for each one? It's a bit like having a room full of people and you're trying to find the right drink order and get it delivered to each one of them. Does she have two sugars in her coffee? Did he say he wanted lemonade? That was the Assyrian approach to dealing with the gods of the nations. How do we keep them all satisfied? 
Or at least, how do we keep them quiet and off our back? That's what's described for us in verses 29 to 33 here. This picture of everyone trying to juggle some sort of commitment to the Lord, so they won't send lions anymore, while still continuing their commitment to the gods they brought from home, from Babylon and wherever else. But look down then to the summary in verse 33. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the custom of the nations from which they had been brought. That is a description of how the new inhabitants of Israel saw the situation. They believed they were worshiping the Lord while serving their old gods too. But in verse 34, we get the Bible's view on all this. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other God or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods. It's pretty hard to miss the point here. The first commandment is repeated four times for us. No other gods. In other words, whatever these new inhabitants of Israel might have thought they were doing, no matter how pleased they might have been by their efforts to serve several gods at once, as far as the Lord is concerned, this is a non-starter. When he said, you shall have no other gods before me, he did not mean, I must be top of your list of gods. He meant, I must be the only God on your list. No one can serve two masters. Lots of people try it. They might even think they're doing it. But the Lord says, it doesn't matter what you think. If you're asking me to share space in your life with any other master, then you're not worshiping me at all. In the Bible, the words worship and serve amount to the same thing. So the question is, who are you going to live for? Not who are you going to sing songs to, but who are you going to get out of bed for? Who's going to be the motivation that drives your life? The writer of Kings is asking us, are you going to try and live for a few different gods? Like money and reputation and position and comfort. And then throw a few bones to the Lord while you're at it. If that's our idea, then we need to see trying to juggle a collection of gods it's not only a miserable way to live, it is doomed to fail. 
Because the true God cannot be worshipped that way. The decision that will liberate you and me is choosing to live for the living God and Him alone. Making that choice will cause all the other choices to fall into their proper place. It will enable us to have a proper love for God's gifts. Not looking to those things as our savior. Not becoming devastated if we lose them. But enjoying them for what they are. Blessings from God. Blessings that ultimately point us right back to him. Not things we have to cling to like our happiness and security depend on them. No one but God can truly provide us with happiness and security. And we crush our families and our friends if we expect them to do that for us. And our work can't do it either. Our holidays can't do it either. We enjoy God's blessings a whole lot more when we stop treating those blessings as if they are saviors. Choosing to make God God of our lives puts everything else in its proper place. And choosing to live for God will also help us say no to things that dishonor God. It will make obedience to Him begin to feel like the natural thing, not the inconvenient, annoying thing. So then how do we get the perspective we need to make the right choice? We stop and remember who this God is. Look what verse 39 says. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. Only the Lord is truly alive. Only the Lord reigns with sovereign power. Only the Lord has shown his love in history. In the exodus. At the cross. He has shown he doesn't wait for us to be good enough before he pours out his grace and mercy and kindness. He says, I love you. Come to me. Trust in what my son did for you on the cross, dying to deliver you from the greatest enemies of all, sin and death and hell. God says, come, seek your joy and fulfillment and security in me alone. And I will welcome you with open arms. Don't hedge your bets. Don't try and keep another backup savior waiting in the wings. God says, abandon yourself to me. And you'll find I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never let go of you. Until you're safe in my presence at last. Surely when we consider the God we're talking about. Surely the choice is obvious for us. Let's commit ourselves to the living God and him alone. We can do that together using the words of our last song.
It says, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow you.